0: hey everyone welcome back to the jacobin show i'm here with a face you haven't seen in a while at least not not since noam chomsky that's right my friend and yours ariella thornhill ariella what's new a baby. Yeah. yeah, in case you guys haven't heard, the reason why Ariella has been absent for a while is. Yeah, I, was, I got a little busy. Yeah. It was nice filming just from the
1: head up because it was a real surprise to people who were like, wait, what? I saw you on the Jacobin show
0: and now you've got a baby? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like there is a glimpse. You can get a glimpse of Talio during the Noam Chomsky interview. I'm not sure. Yeah. Is that true? He I can't was, remember. He was present for that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, for obvious reasons, we're not going to show Ariella's children on the YouTube, but... Uh, Unless they crash the interviews. Which has so been known far. to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, good, to, good to see you back, of course. Um, we actually are going to be talking in a little bit with Paul Heidemann. Uh, He is a contributor to Catalyst and to Jacobin, and he wrote a great article for Catalyst called Behind the the Republican Party Crack Up. Uh, I think we have that linked in the description box below. It's really great. Uh, We actually pre-recorded the interview with him, uh, so so we've talked to him already. I thought it was a great talk. Um, Me too, yeah. I'm really excited for everyone
1: to see it. I think there's something crucial in the way that he kind of unpacks and teases out all of these dynamics because- Despite the clear infighting within the Republican Party, despite the fact that it's sort of fragmented, um, the business class ideology doesn't lead to a coherent kind of strategic plan, we still see some cohesiveness. And I think that's a crucial point because that's provided by capitalism. That's provided by the rules of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, so we see them. You know, driving wages down, um, mm-hmm. degrading the welfare state, et cetera, et cetera, over and over and over again. That's not because they necessarily made a 50-point a plan over the next, you know, three decades to do that. It's because that's actually where their shared interest is, despite the kind of infighting that Paul alludes to. I think it's, it's a great piece. It really demystifies a lot of that process.
0: Also, not to jump the gun on the interview too much, but... Uh- Something that Paul does point out in his piece, and then again when we talk to him in the interview, is that one reason why the business class in the U.S. is so fractured, uh, despite having certain shared interests, is because labor has been so weak. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, when it comes to the question of what we're supposed to do about the Republicans, uh, how we can effectively fight them, it's kind of an open question. I mean, you know, not to be uh, not to be too much of a downer, but you know, Paul Paul heideman didn't, uh, of course didn't have an answer. If we had the answer, we would do it. Um, but I, th- I think that, you know, it, it could go either way, I guess. Um, it's obviously in, in many ways, you can see that it's a huge boon to the left that the Republican Party in, is breaking up. But at the same time, the same structural forces that constrain the Republican Party also present obstacles to those of us on the left.
1: Yeah. And you can see the Republican strategy is essentially to degrade democracy at every turn. Right. You know, we see this with the gerrymandering in Texas. Um, It is a way of stripping people of their rights. And I think that that will be another important front for the left to fight on. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of people have been. um, But I think we have to reckon with two sides of the electoralism coin you mm-hmm. know and i i loved paul's answer about that which you guys will see later um but you know we don't know what um we don't know exactly what terrain we'll be fighting on but we do know that right now our right to vote is being stripped away our democracy is constantly under attack uh particularly by the republican party but on both sides mm-hmm. so i think it's really important for us to to not throw the baby out with the bathwater so to speak we can be critical of all of the ways in which our democracy doesn't function for us but still fight for people's participation in it because that's the cornerstone
0: of you know social democracy and that's right. what we want right I want to quickly mention. Um, so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a segment that kind of looks at some of these different strains. But before we get to that, I want to quickly mention that another part of Paul Heidemann's article is looking at the question of whether the Republicans now have a working class base. Um, obviously, you know we've talked about this issue or this assertion on the show before. There's a lot of wild speculation floating around about whether this is true or not. Uh, we do know for a fact that Democrats have been bleeding working class voters for decades, and And so Paul looks at the question of whether Democrats losing working class support has actually translated to Republicans growing their working class base. And again, Mm -hmm. I I won't spoil the whole interview, um, but he basically finds that that is not the case. And I think what's so interesting about his piece is he really digs into some data to show, to look at the historical trends and to show why that's not the case. So it's not just wild speculation, which, you know, lots Mm -hmm. of people on the right and the left do.
1: Yeah. And he, that's one of the best aspects of the article is demystifying that category Mm -hmm. because so much of um, the way in which the establishment has fought programs from the left is to recapitulate them as cultural issues. Yep. So he resists all of that logic. He's like extremely rigorous in his, uh, in the way that he presents the data and shows that actually when you, when you get down to brass tacks working people, people who are working for another person, right, people who sell their labor, those people have not swung wildly back towards the Republican Party. What the Republican Party is trying to do, I think, is, you know, capture some of of the imaginative thrust of the Trump narrative, right, Mm -hmm. that well-established Republicans and Democrats blamed Trump's win on white working class voters. And I think the left fell prey to that too. And the Republicans are like, yeah, yeah, we're the everyman now. Right. You know, that that the data doesn't bear that out, but we shouldn't go along with their, you know, rebranding. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be like, yes, give me more of this like bizarre kind of marketing spin. Right. Um, and I think that Paul's article really shows that, you know, when you actually look at the numbers, that's not what's happening, but also they're not protecting the interests of the working class at all. Right, and you need to fight back against both of those claims. We need to fight back against the mystification of what a working class person is and the claims that gesturing towards that mystified image um, is a way of actually meeting the needs of that class.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, well, I think on that note, maybe I will dive into my segment now. Uh, Ariella, I am very excited to get your thoughts on this. Uh, and then we'll go to Paul Heidemann's interview, which again, uh, I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was a great interview. So stick around for that. Um, for now, I'm going to give a little uh, update or check in on Red State America. So a few years ago, economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton coined the term deaths of despair to refer to an unprecedented increase in suicide, drug overdose and alcohol related liver disease among working class white Americans over the course of the 21st century.
2: That starting in 1999, the death rate of middle aged white Americans has been going up instead of down. We thought we must have made an error. I mean, the whole world is getting better. Um, this middle aged group
3: is the one that's benefited most, at least since 1970, from advances
2: in the treatment of heart disease, from people quitting smoking, all of those things. And then suddenly for this trend that's going down, just to reverse out, seemed like you had to be wrong, but it was not wrong. The big increase was in what Case calls deaths of despair, alcohol-related liver disease, suicide, drug overdose. People kill themselves slowly with alcohol uh, or drugs or quickly with a gun. For people aged 50 to 55, for example, those rates went from 40 per 100,000 to 80 per 100,000 since the turn of the century. And it's people with a high school degree or less who are killing themselves in these ways in large numbers. That's the group that's getting hammered.
0: So Case and Deaton found that in 2018, there were around 158,000 deaths of despair in the U.S., or the equivalent of three fully loaded Boeing 737 jets falling out of the sky every day for a year. Now, to add to this, Case and Deaton recently published a new paper that looks at all-cause mortality, so not just deaths of despair, but basically deaths from everything, and found that, again, people without a college degree are dying much faster than those with a college degree. Their new study found that this wasn't just the case for whites, it was the case for all races. So on this graph, the solid lines represent mortality rates for people without a college degree, and the dotted lines represent people with a college degree. So the green lines represent blacks and the blue lines represent whites. And basically what we can see here is that particularly after 2010, there's been a huge discrepancy in mortality between people with a college degree and those without for both whites and blacks. As Case and Deaton write, as educational gaps have widened racial gaps have narrowed so that Blacks with a BA are now closer to Whites with a BA than they are to Blacks without a BA. That's basically the opposite of the situation in 1992 and up to around 2000. In other words, people of all races without college degrees are clearly getting screwed over. So why is mortality for people without a BA climbing in the U.S. when this is not the case in other rich countries? According to an author named Jonathan Metzl, it's because white Americans are so committed to whiteness that they keep voting against what he calls their biological self interest. In 2019, Metzl published a book called Dying of Whiteness How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. The book was an instant hit with the liberal media. It was covered by NBC, PBS, MSNBC, Brian Lehrer, NPR, The Washington Post. And it even appeared on an anti-racist reading list assembled by none other than Ibram X. Kendi for the New York Times. Here's Metzl talking about his book on Bill Maher.
2: So you wrote a very interesting book. Uh, we've heard before that the uh, Trump voter votes against his own economic interests, but you're taking it a quite a bit further, and you're saying that Trump policies actually make it more likely that the mostly white male voter, who is the Trump core voter, is going to get sick and die. I mean, in a nutshell, that that is kind of what I'm showing. Well, I, we're I'm, not allowed to call them stupid. <laughs> I'm a professor, and I'm a and I'm a doctor, right? And I, I me still, too. Okay, You're welcome. <laughs> I know, as far like as you time know, a dozen mistakes, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and and so you know, basically, the core argument of the book is that the politics that claim to make um, white America great again right. end up making particularly working-class white lives harder, sicker, and in many instances shorter. I spent about seven years, going through the South, where I live, oh. and tracking the story of basically what happens if you live in a state that, for example, blocks health care reform, that lets anybody sure. and everyone buy Medicaid a Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion, blocking Save the expansion. saving many lives. And, yeah. Huge tax cuts that end up undercutting roads, bridges, and schools. And what I found was, on one hand, that gave many people the sensation of winning. But when I looked at it from a medical angle and from a data angle, those policies themselves ended up being as dangerous to people, and particularly working class white people, as asbestos or secondhand smoke or not wearing seatbelts in cars. They were literally contributing to a shortened lifespan.
0: And what's even worse is that, according to Betzel, these people just can't be budged. Here's what he told PBS about the depths of working class white people's commitment to the politics of racial resentment.
2: This book is an object lesson in a lesson that I think that liberals were very slow to respond to, um, which was the depth of commitment that many working-class white Americans had to particular positions, even if those positions were bad to them. People were quite literally willing to lay down on the tracks, put their own lives— I mean, in Kansas, people were willing to support tax cuts that affected their own kids' schools— and I think liberals really miss that. They miss the, the depth of that particular kind of commitment. And certainly for people who care about particular social issues like the courts and abortion and factors like that, they, that felt like an, a fair trade off for, for them. And again, I think that's an important point. This is a book about the depth of that commitment to those positions.
0: So if the problem is all these working class whites who are blindly committed to preserving the racial hierarchy at their own expense, what should we do about it? In an interview with Fox, Metzl said this. Ultimately, working class white communities are going to have to demand more or better from their politicians. They're going to have to stop falling for the racist scapegoating and instead demand better health care and roads and schools. Can you imagine what would happen to the GOP agenda if working class white communities in the South said, yeah, we support the GOP, but we also want Medicaid expansion and we want better schools and bridges and we want the government to stop giving tax breaks to rich people? Well, we don't have to imagine. Let's look at what happened when a GOP stronghold in the West did exactly that. I'm talking here about Idaho, which some of you may know as my home state. In 2018, a year before Metzels' book came out, Idaho residents who are overwhelmingly Republican and 90% white voted on a ballot measure to expand Medicaid in the state. The Medicaid expansion measure passed with the support of 61% of voters or a clear majority. So what happened here? Did the white people of Idaho mysteriously all receive copies of White Fragility and unpacking the invisible knapsack and suddenly come to realize how backwards their attitudes on race were? Did they undergo some kind of collective racial reckoning to overcome their steadfast commitment to whiteness? Actually, what happened was much simpler. A nonpartisan group of volunteers and organizers in Idaho decided to go door to door and talk to voters. Take a look.
4: The Medicaid Express bus stopped in Coeur d'Alene today. The group Reclaim Idaho is touring with the goal of expanding Medicaid statewide. They want to expand Medicaid to cover 62,000 Idahoans who aren't covered by health insurance. And the group claims expanding Medicaid will actually save taxpayers. New on Nightside, Kyle Simchuk walked with volunteers during a doorbell ringing campaign tonight. And Kyle, many homes you visited in Coeur d'Alene seem to support the idea. Well, Aaron. and they seem to understand what's at stake here. That is the mission of this statewide tour to inform voters. When Reclaim Idaho launched their effort earlier this year, skeptics said their biggest hurdle would be getting signatures in the dead of winter.
0: I have six little warmers on my body in different places <laughs> to stay warm.
4: Their persistence paid off. Prop 2 is now on the November ballot. Now Reclaim Idaho is at it again, making sure voters check yes. My name's Luke. I'm a volunteer out talking with people about the big Medicaid expansion vote coming up. Luke Mayville is the co-founder of Reclaim Idaho. For the next 18 days, he and several volunteers are traveling around the state in this green bus, chatting with voters. By voting yes, they can extend health care to 62,000 Idahoans who desperately need it. Those 62,000 Idahoans are living in limbo, making too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to afford health insurance on the state exchange. Proposition 2 would expand Medicaid to include everyone under 65 whose adjusted gross income is 133% of the federal poverty level. That works out to be about 16,000 for a single person or about 33,000 for a family of four. There's still a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of people think that this is going to be a real tax burden for Idaho when it's really the opposite. Federal dollars would cover 90% of the expansion costs and Mayville says it would scale down emergency county and state programs that cover medical bills when patients can't. If we do our work of going out and finding our supporters, getting our message Thank across, so we will win.
0: As it turns out, this strategy worked. And though, of course, I have a soft spot for Idaho, I'm actually not just cherry picking one heartwarming tale of triumph in an otherwise doomed nation of racist, Medicaid-hating Trump voters. Since 2016, voters in several other heavily Republican, majority white states, such as Utah and Nebraska, have also approved ballot measures to expand Medicaid. According to Politico, these ballot measures together made up the most significant growth of Medicaid expansion since the early phase of the Affordable Care Act and a resounding rebuke to GOP lawmakers in states that have rejected a program that's financed mostly with federal dollars. It also came as the Trump administration tried to shrink Medicaid and Republican lawmakers in Washington took another crack at Obamacare repeal. So, when white people in red states got on board with Medicaid, did Republican state legislatures suddenly collapse because the people had risen up to demand more? No. The Republicans did what they do best that is, ignore a popular mandate in order to push austerity politics and immediately tried to block or attach punishing work requirements to the Medicaid expansions that the people had just voted to pass. Now, thankfully, the Medicaid expansions in the three states I mentioned are currently still in place but they're constantly subject to attack from GOP lawmakers. So this is all to say, are there racists who would rather literally die than vote for policies that even seem like they might help non-white people? Of course there are. Does this group of people exert more power on our political system than the Republican party elite, business lobbies, the Koch brothers, and other big money interests that oppose expanding Medicaid? I doubt it. When it comes to thinking about why people vote against their self-interests, as the saying goes, I'll let Professor Noam Chomsky have the last word. He spoke with our friends on The Weekend's show last year and said this. Is it possible for um, the working class to work together, regardless of their overall political ideology, whether they're on the right or the left?
4: First of all, they have to have something to vote for. If the Democrats say, we don't care about you, now, we're the party of Wall Street and rich professionals. Uh, we have Hollywood stars at our events, and who cares about you? Uh, yeah, They'll vote for the guy who's I like you, I act like you. I I hate the leaves.'ll Vote for that guy, even if he's not doing anything for them, and in fact screwing them.
0: If we're going to have any success even approaching what our socialist and labor-oriented predecessors once accomplished in this country and around the world, we should begin not by throwing up our hands at the irredeemable whiteness of red state America, but instead by A, recognizing that most people are basically rational, and B, it's therefore the job of political organizers to build a culture of working-class solidarity, despite and sometimes against various other kinds of identities. As Professor Chomsky put it, unless there's a constructive alternative, people aren't going to join a movement. You were right about that Bill Maher clip. We <laughs> <laughs> <I> warned <laughs> Ariella about it beforehand. She didn't get a chance to see it, and I was like, "Buckle up!" <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm. I don't make a habit of watching him, but he did. He he has this what is obviously elitist disdain for mm-hmm. you know people who are dying. That's. Mm-hmm. The subject that he's talking about. He's like, we can't call these people stupid. Uh-huh. I also think there's like, you know, the kind of standard American racecraft bait and switch here. It is really a problem to say th- this group of white people are voting against their self-interest. They'd rather die, right, than expand programs that might help other groups. It's a problem because it allows liberals to feel okay with saying things like, well, then just let them secede from America and die. You know, it creates this bracketing off of um, people with similar interests. And it makes an issue like your right to life into a partisan issue, which it's not. And I think that, you know, this is a case study in that.
0: Yeah, like I was saying, like, so, you know, Ariella and I are, we both grew up in predominantly white red states. And so, you know, I definitely know people who literally are probably so racist that they're never going to vote for anything that could possibly help a non-white person. Like, that's a person that exists. But I think part of the point that I wanted to make is I don't think that this person's influence on the Republican Party is as great as, say, the Koch brothers. Do you know what I mean? And I think that, again, to connect it to a point that Paul, Heidemann made in when we interviewed him and also in his article, like the Republicans base is actually not the working class white people that uh, that, you know, Bill Maher and even Jonathan Metzl and, you know, some of these liberal commentators want to blame. Like, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's two things going on here. One, are there racists? Yes, of course, naturally, like we already know this. B, do they actually wield that much power? Debatable. Yeah.
1: Yep. And what they're doing is they're kind of creating a straw man with uh, a caricature of white poor workers, right? Yeah. And saying, these are the people to blame. Mm -hmm. These are the people we have to wag our fingers at. And you saw this after the, uh, the riots in January when they were saying, some of these people took a private jet here. As though their imagination that all of these people were, you know, like so-called trailer trash, to use <laughs> right. a term that makes me really uncomfortable. Right. Um, how could they have actually afforded this? I th- there, there's a deep-seated logic mm-hmm. that... Um, those who are wealthy have earned it through right. being rational through being good workers through being the right kind of patriots through you know succeeding in the meritocracy and that all of those you know dumb dumb idiots who are poor are to blame and we can unpack that and see that in these you know white racist voting patterns and that has to be crushed mm-hmm. that ideology is so toxic it has to be crushed it is terrible. Mm -hmm. It is terrible. It's essentially what allows people to think that condemning these people to die is, is just, you know, part of the natural order of American meritocracy. That if you have people who are, you know, living in intractable poverty and who aren't voting the way you want them to vote. Yeah, exactly. To meet your expectations then um, those people don't count Um, and it it really is deeply deeply insidious and something that's trotted out by liberals over and over and over again and only fuels the divide only fuels the resentment and lays the groundwork for someone to come in and be like they think you're garbage i mean we saw this with the deplorables basket of deplorables comments bill maher literally
0: laughed at people dying yeah he's making it easy (laughs) Yeah. And said,
1: oh, and we can't call them stupid. Right. I mean, the other thing is, it takes a lot to build grassroots power. Most voters are disenfranchised in America. And it takes a lot to actually rebuild something on the scale that could face up to business lobbies, PACs, well-established, you know, Republicans, um, local elites. Yeah. It's a big, big fight. It's not just that these people are going like, I'm going to throw my hands up because I don't want, you know, one or two Mexican people to get Medicaid. Right. And Yet- you're right. There are those people who are so resentful that they're like, I'm going to do something, you know, to stick it to the imaginary other or whatever. But they're not really a big part of the <laughs> the game
0: here. I think uh, something you said earlier about how this idea of like, these people are dying of whiteness is just classic american racecraft i think that's so true i mean i was thinking about i was thinking about whether whiteness as an explanation like ever really ever really goes that far in actually explaining people's political choices i don't think it does and mm-hmm. i honestly think that you know it's defeatist bullshit like, where are we supposed to go? Like, let's say that, you know, whiteness actually is animating these people's political preferences. What are we supposed to do about it? I mean, it, you know, the the author Jonathan Metzl, who, the author of Dying of Whiteness, you know, literally said in an interview, it, oh, it's on those people to basically wake mm-hmm. up to the truth. But it's like, I don't know, if we're, if we're serious about organizing people, why would we want to just sit around waiting for people to like become less racist or whatever?
1: Yeah. And to have an epiphany, like maybe by being mean to others, (laughs) I've been hurting myself. Right. You know, I think you also see this in the Jennifer Silva interview that we did. Her work is really good at teasing this out and making it clear that these categories aren't you know, defining constituencies. I think there's something backwards too, particularly when you look at how the media talks about these things. When people talk about race and class in their own experiences, it's always muddled together. And I think that you see this in the way that, you know, the white working class is being talked about here. They're being talked about like, you know, this failed sector of Americans who you know deserve what they're getting because they're not being rational and deserve what they're getting because they're poor that's austerity logic yep the idea that resources should be distributed on that basis that people should be able to live or die on the basis of how they have succeeded in a you know imaginary meritocracy that is it's so 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 disturbing we need to break that apart and say like listen this is our system you know, we're paying taxes for these services. We are working to create the world that we live in. We have inherited the ideas of dead labor from centuries ago, and we're making it real now. That's what the working class does. The working class doesn't deserve something simply because they've, you know, followed the rules correctly in your imagination of them. And that's the other side of racecraft is that- It's trying to naturalize dynamics of inequality by making them seem like biological categories mm-hmm. and by making them seem kind of unimpeachably natural. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's OK to be derisive, um, because, you know, look at these idiots over here. It's it's really deeply, deeply insidious and cruel.
0: Yeah. One one last final point, again, just to kind of go off what you're saying about racecraft. So this author, Jonathan Metzl, he calls all of these, you know, regressive, uh, harmful policies such as blocking Medicaid expansion or like tax cuts for the rich. He calls these politics of whiteness. He calls these politics of racial resentment. And of course, you know, we all know what the GOP is. They frequently use dog whistles. They will frequently try to dress up these policies in this language of, you know, Uh, racial othering or or racism or what have you. But at the end of the day, what is actually beneficial about calling these politics whiteness rather than calling them austerity? I don't know. That's actually an open question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, there's a few things going on. One is like this basic ideology that the systems that we're living amongst are an aggregate of people's thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm, Right. And that's the, the trough liberals go to over and over and over again. So it's like, if you felt different and, and resentment wasn't your primary animus, then we'd have a better world. Mm -hmm. And it is a defeatist viewpoint, like you said, because it's couched in a pessimism that refuses to believe that, you know, there could be another way that we could have solidarity that we all share the same interests and want the same things. But I think the other thing is media people tend to, um, and I'm calling him a media person. I know that he's a doctor and a sociologist, but he's good on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's an author now. Yeah, exactly. a media person. yeah, They tend to extrapolate from, you know, the, the thought processes of market segments. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and of course those are couched in, you know, historical ideas about race, gender, class, and all of the stereotypes that accompany that. But so when you get people talking about their lived experience of race, even that person who's like, I so resent, you know, black people in my neighborhood that I'm not voting for this thing because I don't want those lazy people to get it. Even when you really talk to that person, like Jennifer Silva showed, they're like, I'm a big entitlements guy. Exactly. I think everyone should get a pension we're just not having those conversations with the end point of solidarity. Mm -hmm. I think that when your bread and butter is like polarization, and I don't think that this is true about uh, Jonathan Metzl. I think this is true about Bill Maher. (laughs) When your bread and butter is polarization, you're not interested in those conversations and you're not interested in viewing people as well-rounded humans. You're Mm -hmm. interested in using them selectively to reinforce a worldview. And, you know, the worldview du jour is like, Everything in America can be explained by race, not class. Don't look behind the curtain. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Pay no attention. (laughs) And also everything we have right now is a manifestation uh, of the aggregate of all Americans' thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And so like me as a media person, changing those thoughts and feelings is like a really big deal, an important thing. And we just have to get away from it. It's like you showed, you know, people in the dead of winter – I know it's freezing cold It's going out (laughs) and talking to people and saying, like, I want to help you. I want to help our community. I want to make sure that we have, you know, the lives that we are owed.
0: Yeah. I just want to make uh, one last point about Reclaim Idaho, because obviously, like, I I think they're amazing. They're still in Idaho. They are um, organizing now around getting more more funding to public schools. So, again, a thing that Jonathan Metzl says that, like, working class white people will never go for. Um, We'll see. Uh, Yeah, I I, I do want to say that, you know, they. they, you know, they're, they're clearly, Reclaim Idaho is clearly very interested in what we might call progressive measures, right? Medicaid expansion, mm-hmm. more funding to public schools. But they brand themselves as nonpartisan, or rather, should I say, they don't brand themselves as affiliated with Democrats, or like, you know, Justice Democrats or DSA or anything. They're just like, we're a group of people from all walks of life, from all ideological backgrounds, who want to pass Medicaid in Idaho, mm-hmm. who want to pass the Medicaid expansion in Idaho. And, um, you know, I just think that... Uh It's something to think about because obviously, as I pointed out, that happened in Utah and Nebraska as well. Like you can get these things done in red states. I don't think, and I don't even think it's an issue of like hiding your politics or like, you know, Mm. like, like doing dog whistles or like pretending you're a Republican or anything. I don't think it has anything to do with that. But at the same time, I also think that, you know, not attaching yourself to some of the like democratic signifiers or culture war things is also effective.
1: Absolutely, especially when they're associated with that kind of sneering dismissal of people dying. Right. And they are. Right. You know, you've got people who who have been told over and over this is this is the way you can get the life that you are owed, right? Um and if Republicans are telling them that it's from protectionism and stopping immigration and, you know, terrorists and um, segregation essentially, then that's the person they're going to listen to. They're mm-hmm. not going to listen to the party that's been sneering at them. When you pull away from that and you pull away from these feuding brands, you actually can start to connect to people's real needs. And you know it's interesting because a friend of mine was organizing um, some casino workers and she was saying that most of the shop stewards were Trump voters. Mm-hmm. And someone was like, oh, that's so strange. But- No, they were like, I want power in my workplace. Right, yeah. Um, It's not strange because it's a rational thing to want to unionize.
0: Right. And I was going to say, the people who think it's strange should read Jennifer Silva's book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for real, for real.
0: No, I mean, I get get why people, you know, uh, are like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Or like, oh, that that seems kind of strange because it's outside of the narrative that we hear so much Mm -hmm. time and time again, you know, that, you know, the Trump voters are not, the Trump voters are racist. They're dumb. They're not going to do anything to help other people or even themselves you know yeah
1: it's really putting the the kind of ideological cart before the horse or like thinking that the abstracted you know golden mean idea of what a person is what a voter is what a constituency is imparts itself onto the person Mm -hmm. rather than actually thinking through how people operate in the real world
0: right and on that note, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, yeah, let's, let's go to, let's go to the Paul Heideman interview now. Um, I, I thought it was great again. Um, I hope that you guys enjoy it. I had a great time talking to him. Uh, and yeah, his article is linked below. Uh, so definitely read that too when you get a chance.
1: Yeah. There's a lot more to dig into in that article that we had, than we had time for, we would have had like a two hour interview if we went through everything we wanted to, I think, but, um, it's definitely
0: worth the read. All right, let's get to it. We are now joined by Paul Heidemann. He is a contributor to Jacobin and Catalyst and the editor of the book Class Struggle and the Color Line, American Socialism and the Race Question. And of course, his latest piece in Catalyst is Behind the Republican Party Crack Up. Paul, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: So... Your article broadly looks at the shift that the Republican Party has undergone over the last several decades. Some have called it uh, the radicalization of the Republicans. Some people have called it, uh, you know, the Republicans' rightward turn. And you begin your essay by looking at whether the Republicans now have a working class base. This is obviously a myth or, you know, an assertion that we've heard a lot, uh, most notably from Republicans themselves. I think Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio have often said that the Republicans are now a working-class last party. Uh, and, um, I think that this is kind of a complicated question because, you know, on the one hand, we do know that the Democrats are bleeding working class support and have been bleeding working class support for many decades now. Um, Now, you argue that this actually has not translated to a gain for Republicans. And I think because there's so much speculation and so much propaganda around this question, um, maybe you can start by just talking about uh, the data that you looked at and, and why you can say for sure that the Republicans are not now Working class party.
3: Yeah, so you know this is a question where um, anecdata really rules. You know, um, where someone finds a guy in overalls who talks about you know what he doesn't like happening in the big cities and things like that, and they say you know okay, well look, the working class is is turning Republican. You know, or looking at you know areas like um, you know Janesville in Wisconsin that used to be Democratic factory bastions that have since been become Republican, and people say, well, you know, look, obviously. The, the white working class in particular, has has uh, switched over to the Republican Party. And because it's a question that is so ruled by, you know, um, by anecdote and impression, I wanted to look at it more systematically. And so, you know, there's a couple long-running surveys of uh, Americans that ask about political behavior, about how they voted, how they identify, what they think about the issues, um, and I used the, the general social survey, um, which is a long running, very high quality uh, representative survey that's asked. Um, it was initially asked every year. Now it's asked every two years. Um, and it the, the reason I chose the GSS is because it has really rich data on people's occupations. And occupation is you know in the in the kind of language of like uh, social science in the United States occupation is kind of the observed characteristic of people that gets most closely at what like socialists mean by class you know most social scientists most surveys don't go around asking people so are you a capitalist or a proletarian right they ask you what's your occupation but occupation can map, Pretty easily onto that schema, right? If you are a, a retail clerk, you know it's it's pretty unambiguous what class you're in, right? Um, so so the occupation is a is, is a really good way to get at what socialists are interested in class, which is the exploited exploiter relationship, right? That's that's what we're fundamentally interested in talking about class, um, and so the GSS has rich data on that, and so I just looked at partisan identification in the GSS. You ask people, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you an independent? Right. Um, And they've asked that question for 50 odd years at this point. Um, So you can you can look at a fairly long run of data and see, you know, and break it down by class, really, and see like, okay, what are the actual patterns in partisan identification? Um, and, And when you do that, you find that the, the pattern in the United States is not the working class switching from Democrat to Republican at all the pattern is this just pervasive de where there's not really any pattern anymore, right? Where there's just kind of a mush. Um, it used to be that Democrats, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, Democrats have a clear majority of workers in the United States. That's not the case anymore. But Republicans also don't have anything that looks like a clear majority. And in fact, people who say they identify as independents, um, that that has risen more among workers than actually Republican identification has. Now, you know, some people might say, Okay, okay, well, like a lot of those people vote Republican. And no doubt a lot of them do. Many many do vote Republican. But partisan identification is still the best predictor. It, it has only become over time a stronger predictor of how people vote. So the fact that you see this de-alignment um, is it, it, there's a strong reason to believe that that translates to the ballot box as well, not just how people are responding on surveys.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good point that when you look at the actual data, the anecdotes don't hold up. And we have started treating class as affect, I think, in this country, and sort of fetishizing types of behavior or life experience as being classed or denoting class. But when you actually get down to it, Republicans may gesture towards people with that behavior, right, or that image, but they're not actually representing them. So I wanted to talk to you about the other point that you bring up in the article, which is that um, we don't really have a working class party in the same way that other countries may. And you explore the reasons why we don't have this historically. um, And I wanted you to talk to our audience about what's behind those reasons, the kind of role of working class organization and militancy in creating a party that is truly of the working class. And then if you could expand on that, tell us why Republicans don't fit the bill.
3: Yeah. So, you know, other countries like, you know, Britain or Germany, other kind of advanced capitalist countries have working class parties, parties who are like, we are the party of workers, um, we stand for workers' rights, or, or even more, we stand for socialism, um, our, our working base as workers. The United States has never had anything like that. The Democratic Party, you know, at the height of the New Deal, was not that. And the reasons for that are complex, right? This is the question of American exceptionalism. Um, there, there's a couple that I think are, are, are worth pointing out. Um, first is that um, American business was... Bigger and stronger in the United States earlier than elsewhere. American exceptionalism is often framed as like, well, what's wrong with American workers? But I I think a more fruitful way to look at it is actually, why was American capital so strong and dominant? And so if you look at like, you know, in like the 1900s in Pennsylvania coal country, right? Um, the employers had private armies that they rented, right? Like people know the Pinkertons, right? The Pinkertons are only the biggest and most well-known of, of these private armies. And around the year 1900, there were more men at arms in these private armies than there were in the United States military, right? Which is a, a situation of ruling class naked dominance that Was, you know, like if you read the socialist press at the time, people are like, Well, the United States is most like Russia, a country with no democracy, where workers have no rights. That's the country where we're most that that we're most like, right? Um, you know, workers in the United States, uh, if you read like International Socialist Review in nineteen oh five, that's the conversation that they were having. So because of the strength and dominance of American business, correspondingly, American labor was was much weaker. Um, I I was much less able. And so American labor, after the defeat of the Knights of Labor in the 1880s, the kind of industrially oriented radical unions – Um, American labor organized around craft lines, sectional defensive organization that was groups of skilled workers trying to defend their kind of narrow prerogatives to to bid up the price of their labor power, often by excluding people from the market, right? Like that that kind of organizing is not conducive to the formation of a class-wide political party in the same way that industrial unionizing is, and that only comes to the U.S. on a large scale in the 1930s. So, so I think that's, that's a really key point. That's the, the, it's, it's the character of American capital that's different. Now that said, you know, people in this context often bring up racism divisions in the American labor movement. And there's no question that those played a role. I think there's absolutely no question. Those are uh, of course incredibly important, but I, I would say that the exceptional character of American capital gets less attention than it should in these kinds of discussions.
0: So, uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, um, but, but you talk about how that unique characteristic of American capital actually has to do with, or it's actually very important for the trajectory of the Republican Party. Um, and we'll get into that, but I, I, Want to first ask you about um, the American political party system. Um, in your article, you talk about how weak it is, uh, how the American political parties are not like political parties in other parts of the world, uh, as as you were just referring to. Um, and this, as you argue, is kind of this key part of the transformation of the Republican Party. So, I guess the question for you is: Why are American political parties so weak? And then, following from that, how does that uh, how does that affect the shape of the Republican Party, and specifically? How does that influence the role that money comes to play in politics?
3: Yeah, so American parties have have been weak for for a very long time in the United States. Really going back, like if you read the the founding fathers on on uh, you know if you read Alexander Hamilton, these people they're like we don't want parties. Um, we, we, we want a, a country in which there's not going to be political parties. Like the constitution, the, the system of checks and balances actually partially set up to be like, this is going to make it hard for parties to form because everything's going to be such a mess. No one's going to be able to coalesce around everything. Everyone's going to be wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. So there's not going to be any of these kind of permanent parties. And, you know, that was that was a kind of political thought that the the, um, constitutional generation had that was in some ways coming out of the experience of of the English Civil War a century earlier, um, where like a lot of English political theorists were like, uh, if you have open political parties, it leads to war. So you you don't want to have those. Um, So so the, the American Constitution and the early political system is very anti party. Now parties inevitably form because if you have even a modicum, of democracy, people are going to form organizations to advance their interests. Right? Parties are going to form, um, and throughout the 19th century, um, the American parties are basically just coalitions of regional elites. You know, um, they're 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 just kind of it's, it's like the local political machine here is allied with the political machine over there, and and that's what the American party system looks like. There's no left right divide in the American parties there's no ideological basis to the parties and and that's true in a lot of places that these parties that the early parties are just kind of cartels of local notables what's different is partially because in the United States you don't get a strong workers party um, there's no ideological shaking out of the party system in the way that happens in much of the rest of the capitalist world where you've got a workers party and everyone else has to be kind of like, uh, what are we going to do about them? Are we going to kill them all? That's the conservatives. Or do we think that there can be some kind of compromise with them? That's the liberals, right? Like that's how party systems shake out all over the rest of the uh, advanced capitalist world. Um, in the U S that never happens in the U S instead we get, I mean, so so we get something of a clarification from the 30s to the 60s, right? By the 1980s, everyone knows the Democrats are the Liberal Party, the Republicans are the Conservative Party. But what we don't get is a solidifying of these parties into cohesive institutional apparatuses. And and the part of the reason for that goes back to actually like progressive era reformers, like people who were like, I'm a progressive, I'm against the power of big business. And they wanted to, like, open up the, the political system. They, they saw that the political parties are these cartels of, like, local elites. They wanted to open that up. And so they argued for the primary system, right, that, that party leadership gets chosen by these elections. And actually, like, a majority of American states mandated very quickly, by, by the 1930s, a majority of American states mandated that any person running for state office has to like be to, to get on the ballot line, has to win a primary, right? Parties have to hold primaries. They do not have the option of selecting their candidates in any other way. And what primaries effectively do is they they turn parties from organizational apparatuses that can make decisions on their own two bodies whose job is to, like, run an election in a neutral way, right? Because, like, the the, and and so, like, in a lot of states, the the parties themselves are forbidden from endorsing a candidate in a primary, which, like, to people in almost any other country is an insane idea that the political party can't select a candidate. Like, other people are like, that's the entire job of political parties is to select a candidate to run in a race. The idea that they can't, that they have to pitch it out to this primary sounds nuts, but but that's mandated by law in the United States in many states, and so the primary system effectively gives us one a candidate centered system where like personalities are prime rather than parties, platforms, ideas, etc. Um, and two, it actually makes it easier for organized interests to uh, impose their will on that system because the party itself, like the it, like. Labor parties, workers' parties, are organizations that allow workers to aggregate their interests and make their will felt collectively through an organization, right? Well, if parties can't select candidates, the parties can't – there's there's no countervailing force then against these capitalist organized interests who are a, who are able to organize themselves just through their money, right – um, there's there's no counterweight to them imposing their will on the political system. So even as even as primaries were like this progressive reform, they actually totally undercut the ability of uh, the par, uh, of the political system to, to to represent the interests of workers in particular. Right. They, they actually made it harder for for workers' interests to be represented in the political system.
0: So just to follow up quickly on that, uh, where does money come in? Because that's a big part of the the story of how the Republicans uh, kind of shape shift.
3: Yeah. So so this weakness obviously goes back to the progressive era, right? This party weakness. But it really intensifies after the 1970s. Because after the 1970s, there are a series of reforms that actually mostly originate with the Democratic Party, but uh, affect the entire system. And there's two that are really central. First, in Congress, Leadership on like committees stops being about um, seniority. From basically the turn of the 20th century until the 1970s, the early 1970s, congressional committee assignment was simply based on seniority. If you were senior, you got to be on like the Senate Banking Committee, which is a really important committee, and you get a lot of campaign contributions if you are on the Senate Banking Committee. Um, that for for a number of reasons that the Democrats wanted to get rid of that system they got rid of it. Now leadership was actually uh, in the hands of the congressional leadership. So like the the, the party leadership in the House gets to determine a, a caucus assignment. Now that sounds like it'll produce a stronger party, but the other change at the same time that's happening is a, a, an even greater place for money in American politics. And money played an outsized role in American politics going way back, but. In the 1970s, uh, campaign costs really start rising as, like, radio and television campaigning really starts taking off. So campaign costs are shooting through the roof. The parties need more money than ever. They pass some campaign finance rules that uh, help facilitate that. And importantly, they they clarify the legal status of PACs because PACs were actually – political action committees were actually started by labor. CIO starts the first PAC in the United States. But – business very quickly is like, this is a good idea. And so in the 70s, when the status of PACs is kind of really solidified by law, and they're given kind of a, a clear place in the system, business forms PACs and, and very, very quickly, uh, completely eclipses labor in its use of PACs to don't to put money into the political system. And so what this means is that now the parties need more money than ever. And a way you can get money is uh, uh, um, by being on committees. So what happens is committee leadership starts going to the people who raise the most money and redistribute it to their colleagues. Right. So, so if you are raising money and and these are what's, what's called leadership packs, right? Like, and it's a, it's a pack where a congressperson is like, this is my pack and I will raise money and then I will dole it out to my colleagues and in my quest for leadership. So, you know, I mean, uh, up until quite recently, um, the both caucuses, the, the Democrats and the Republicans simply had like requirements for how much money you needed for a seat on this subcommittee or the chair of it. The, like these things were basically just auctioned off. Right. You raise this much money. You can have that. Um, so they, 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 that proved embarrassing when those kind of prices inevitably got leaked. So they, they backed off a little from that. But the basics of the system are the same in that these these reforms um, ended up making it so that money ruled the parties in a more unmediated fashion than ever before. Primaries played a bigger role than ever. The parties had less institutional power to choose their candidates. And raising money in the party became the most important route to congressional power.
1: Yeah, that helped elevate Gingrich (laughs) in the show very deftly. He just as a political figure kind of embodies so many of the things that you have discussed in the article. Um, I also think one thing that's really interesting that you pointed out is the fact that PACs were started by labor and taken over by the business class. And I think it's really indicative of this dynamic that you point out that is um, sort of threefold. You have the peculiarity of the primary system in the U.S., you have the weakness of both political parties um, and the party system because of that. And then you have the incoherent business class kind of entering into this dynamic. And this ran counter to my kind of, uh, you know, folk theory of of the political workings in America, to be honest. I felt like business was much more cohesive. They had a strict agenda. There was a strategy what you've kind of uncovered is that they are at odds with each other. So the way that they're enacting certain things can sometimes run counter to other capital interests. Um, and I think that that creates, uh, a kind of incoherence as a citizen when you start to, to really look at these things and try to understand your place and the effects that it has on you. But what you've shown is that it's all—it's also radicalized the Republican Party, that it's part of this dynamic, pulling them to the right. You say, quote, this group is then split between capitalists who are pursuing extremely conservative policy ends and a group that rejects transactional politics in favor of an all out war on regulation and the welfare state. So can you talk about that dynamic, the kind of incoherent, incohesive um, business lobby, the way that PACs inform that and the outcome of this in American politics?
3: Yeah. So American capitalism is unique in that there is no acknowledged nationwide peak organization of American business. Right, there's no group that's like the main business organization in the United States. There's like the Chamber of Commerce, which represents a lot of businesses. There's the Business Roundtable, which speaks for like the CEOs of the largest corporations. But there's no just like one one business organization that like presents the face of business in politics in the country, and that's, that's unusual if you look at other other advanced capitalist nations. Um, and the reason for that goes back to what we were talking about earlier: the, the the weakness of American labor and the dominance of American business. If you are dominant, you don't need to be organized right? Like organizing is something you do to get power. It's not something you do when you already have power. And so like in the United States, the earliest important business organizations were the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce. And both of them were actually started by politicians uh, for their own ends, rather than business organizing to attain power. So the National Association of Manufacturers was started by Republicans allied with the McKinley campaign in 1896, who like wanted to facilitate basically getting all of American business behind McKinley, right? It wasn't business itself organizing, it was politicians being like, wouldn't it be great if business were organized and could do this for us, Right. Similarly, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is uh, is organized in the 1910s by the um, I think it's the Taft administration, who were like, "Look, we're getting some like different signals from business. It would be great if there were one business organization that could just tell us what business wants." Um, and and so that's that's again really unique uh, in the in the history of capitalism. That business organization comes completely from outside of business itself, and. As a result of this, this this kind of disorganized character of American business, um, business in, in the United States has always been kind of more suspicious, less amenable to compromise, more aggressive towards labor, because there's kind of no one organization being like, okay, are we all together on this? Or you know, it's more like, uh, you know, if, if a strike if a strike wins in one factory, that means that it's immediately to the competitive disadvantage of another factor or of that factory versus other factories in the sector versus if you get like, if you have a sector wide thing, then right, then it's, it's imposed on all capitalists at once. Um, so 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 that's a long-running feature of American business. Now, in the 1970s, it must be said, American business actually did organize in a fairly impressive manner against, kind of in order to take down the New Deal. The crisis of the 1970s was an opportunity for them to, to take down the New Deal and to get rid of these, you know, all of this welfare state liberalism and all of that kind of stuff, right? So the Chamber of Commerce, like, quintuples in size over the course of the 1970s. The business roundtable is organized explicitly to be like, we are providing a a voice for business as a class, not for individual businesses, not for like, this guy wants a tax break, and this guy wants help on exports. No, this is the interest of business as a class. That's like the entire idea behind the business roundtable organizing. And they win, right? They basically, they defeat Tons of really uh, uh progressive legislation in uh Jimmy Carter's term, right? Like um, you know, probably the 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 one that, that listeners uh of Jackman Radio might be familiar with is the the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act, um, right? Which was the idea um that the government was going to guarantee full employment. It, that that act passes, but business waters it down so much that it's basically completely meaningless. Um so there's um so so business organizes and wins, but once business wins the conditions for business unity are no longer there, right? That that external enemy that business unifies to fight is, is is defeated. And once Reagan gets in the White House, you have like business groups are reporting like, well, all our people are saying like, well, we got Reagan in the White House. Why do we need to keep paying dues to you for, you know? And so the business organizations really start to, to, to fall apart and decay in the 80s and 90s. That's not to say that they're, they're like, they're, they're losing, right? Like they're, they're, they're like losing important political fights. Now business is so dominant that, um, you know, that, that they're, they're, they're not losing important political fights, but their ability to organize, to cohere a class-wide perspective among business, that's clearly decaying. And so in the, in the late nineties, you start to see both the business roundtable and the chamber of commerce really acting in the most kind of provincial narrow-minded interests of capital. So like the, the chamber of commerce, It's business model becomes you pay us money. And since we're a business association, we don't have to report the money that you're paying us to like the federal uh, election commission or anything like that. And we'll lobby on your behalf for things that if you lobbied for them as a business might look bad for you right? So, like, it goes to bat for the tobacco companies in the late 1990s, and the tobacco companies' image is absolutely terrible. And the the Chamber of Commerce plays a big role in, like, getting favorable export provisions so that tobacco companies can start exporting more and more outside the United States to the rest of the world, right? Um, Again, like, if the tobacco companies are lobbying for that, it doesn't look great, right? But if they're giving their money to the Chamber of Commerce, the tobacco companies can say, well, you know, it's great that, like, you know, we're we're very happy that Congress decided to give us these uh, export incentives, but we didn't And press for them ourselves, you know, Um, and that's very explicitly the Chamber of Commerce's model. It's it's about as far from class wide business organizing as you can get, Um, and that. But you can see how this. This kind of model of organizing fits in really well with a radicalized Republican Party, because the Republican Party is always going to defend kind of the meanest, most sectional interests of, of capital. Right. When capital's like we want we want uh, uh, judges on the bench who are going to declare labor unions illegal. Right. Like the Republican Party, the Republican Party is happy to, to give them that. Right. They're, they're happy to fight for tax breaks for them. Right. Um, and so. The, this this decoherence of American capital, and they're, they're kind of only looking out for their shortest-term interests, is very compatible with the, the Republican Party con- shifting further and further and further to the right, right? And it, mean, it, it also means that even the sections of capital that are concerned about this and are like, this, this maybe seems like not such a great thing, um, it seems like it could threaten business stability, they are not organized in such a fashion that they can do anything to kind of reverse or, or, or halt that
0: slide. I, I want to quickly follow up on that because this was a really interesting part of your article. So, you know, as as you just pointed out, the Republicans, of course, are the party of big business in many ways. Uh, I think we all understand that. Uh, but you have a line in your article where you say something like, "The GOP has embraced politics that actually run directly counter to the preferences of American capital." That is so interesting. Uh, you obviously tease that out in your article. Um, can you just? you know, for the audience, give some examples of how this has happened over the last decade. Like, in what ways have the GOP's policies run counter to capital? Uh, and then can you elaborate a little bit on why this is happening? You, you were starting to touch on it, um, but what's going on here?
3: Yeah, so the... um I mean, there's lots of examples. The government shutdowns are a really good example because because government shutdowns, uh, most government shutdowns of the last 30 years have been basically a result of Republican intransigence. And government shutdowns are really bad for the economy. Right. Like money stops going into federal workers pockets when the government shuts down. And those, you know, like lots of businesses depend on federal workers spending money. Um, and also government services become unpredictable and erratic you know like for example the securities and exchange commission stops doing ipos when the government is shut down right because they can't they're they're a federal office and so things like that introduce lots of uncertainty into the business, into the climate. And and businesses, capitalists hate uncertainty. They want to be able to predict everything. They want to be able to say, this is what quarter two profits will be. This is what quarter three profits will be. So government shutdowns are really terrible for uh, for, for business. They, they hate them. And so like, you know, you as business, you want certain things, right? You want tax breaks. You want unions to go down. But you're usually not willing to risk extensive uncertainty to get any of those things. And the Republicans are right. The Republicans are willing to to risk that stuff. So for, for big sectors of American business, that's, you know, like that, that, that's profoundly troubling behavior by the Republicans. Um, There's other instances too. I mean, Republican intransigence on immigration is not in the interests of, of of most of American business. Most of American business wants some kind of immigration reform, right? Um, They don't want all the immigrants kicked out and they don't want all the doors closed. Um, um, I mean, the 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 move to repeal Obamacare, right? Like, uh, the you know, American health insurance companies fought against Obamacare, but once Obamacare is in you have a whole series of interests that converge around it, right? Like there's all this Medicaid funding going out that a lot of hospitals depend on, for example, right? Um, the medical records industries blows up as Obamacare requires uh, electronic medical record, you know, like, so big sectors of American business learn to live with Obamacare very, very quickly. And and, and again, the move to get rid of it is like, what is, are, are these major policies just going to whiplash back and forth between administrations like this? Again, lots of uncertainty. So, So, so yeah, there's, there's lots of policies and the, the biggest one of all is probably threatening not to pay the federal debt, right. To stop paying the debt because, um, treasury bonds, which is, you know, what, what the federal debt is, is paid on, um, are like the cornerstone of the world financial system. Literally, um, like the entire world financial system would be at risk of crumbling if the United States stopped paying, actually stopped paying out treasury bonds, um, so, so so, yeah, it's virtually no sector of American business has any interest in that. And yet the Republicans have shown themselves very willing to allow that to happen through pure intransigence and negligence, you know. Um, but,
0: but I don't think I don't think that you argue that, you know, it's just that the Republicans are now these hardened culture warriors that, you know, they're going to let uh, the interests of capital fall by the wayside because they're too busy. Uh, I don't know, like whipping their base on these cultural issues. Like what is actually going on?
3: So so yeah the the issue is that The decoherence of capital, um, has itself meant that you have sections of capital that are like, yeah, let's, let's go for it. We want, we want pure intransigence, right? Um, you you don't have that kind of class-wide discipline of capital. Instead, you have some sectors of capital, like the, the ones that support the Tea Party, which are, you know, extraordinarily well-funded. It's not just like the Koch brothers and like a few cranks, right? The amount of money being raised makes that very clear, um, so you have sectors of American capital that are like yeah we think what's best for us is complete war on the welfare state at any cost right and so we're going to back the republicans that do that then you have lots of other sections of American capital including you know like like some of the the the, the representatives of of the largest companies who are like this is insane Right, like you, you, you guys are completely insane, and so you've had this battle in the Republican Party between the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable versus like Americans for Prosperity and and Freedom Works, you know, the the, the kind of Tea Party things. They're they're different wings of American capital that are at war with each other in the Republican
1: Party. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and it's very well illustrated through your um, kind of exploration of Donald Trump's rise to power. Um, I was listening, not by choice. I was driving (laughs) and this came on the radio, (laughs) but there was an interview with George Will and he was talking about how... Just have to defend myself (laughs) again, seeming like I'm a fan of his. It's Um, your car's fault. But he was talking about how uh, he thinks the biggest flaw with the Democrats is that they are always pushing for bloated spending, right? And they're forcing the Republicans' hand, essentially making the Republicans threaten to destroy the global economy, right? So that (laughs) they don't go out of hand, like feeding children in preschools. Um, And he said the problem with the Republicans is that Republicans need to return to be being the party of traditional Republican values rather than the party of Trump. But one interesting thing that you showed is that this kind of insurgent movement isn't new. And the Republican Party is constantly kind of realigning and redefining itself as and folding in these insurgent movements. You uh, showed this with the Tea Party, you showed this with Trump, and then that pulls certain aspects of it to the right. And then that kind of pulls on the knit of the fabric of the whole party until it's pulling everyone further to the right. So I was wondering if you could talk about that dynamic, particularly, um, you know, how much of an anomaly was Trump in this regard? And is it really at odds with like Republican values being cohesive or were they ever cohesive to begin with?
3: yeah. I mean so the way I characterize it in the article is that since the 80s really you see in the Republican Party this dance of insurgents and establishments where you have these insurgents who want to pull the party to the right um, and they often succeed but their, their success often brings troubles that lead the establishment to be able to say, okay we're going to be back in charge then the establishment has a crisis of its own which sets the round then sets the groundwork for a new round of insurgents to be like we got to pull the party to the right even farther right And so you see that with Gingrich and Reagan right Gingrich in the 80s, comes up being like, Reagan did not do enough. Reagan is not pulling the party far enough to the right. We need to be more extreme than Reagan. And, you know, in 1994, with the Republican Revolution, when under Gingrich's leadership, the Republicans retake the House of Representatives for the first time in 40-odd years, um, they, uh, they get that, right? They, uh, the, 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 the insurgents win. Gingrich, however, immediately goes into this budget battle with Bill Clinton, where he does a government shutdown, where he actually doesn't have the support because most of of most Americans, most Americans don't want to shut the government down in order to cut Medicare and Medicaid, which is what Gingrich wanted. Um, And so Gingrich loses. I mean, Gingrich's star is tarnished almost immediately, right? Like by by 1995, 1996, he is recognized as a loser, a political loser among the Republicans, right? Who'd been their star only a year before. Um, So Bob Dole, very establishment candidate in 19. 1996. Dole then loses to Clinton, which empowers the new round of insurgents who are kind of people who are even to the right of Gingrich. Right. Like the people who Gingrich brings into office in 1994 are to the right of him um, and, and they come to power. Now, what's what's interesting is that. George Bush, you know, George Bush is not known for his political intellect, but he did accomplish the impressive task of forging Republican unity after the 1990s were kind of a decade of warfare between the conservatives and the moderates in the Republican Party. And Bush gets them both together in his administration because he has all these links to his father's administration, which was stocked with the moderates. But he's also a Christian conservative who likes, you know, the lunatics like John Ashcroft. Right. Um and so Bush manages to kind of unify them. But, you know, after 2006, the Bush administration is shattered, right? The the, the midterm elections uh, that are overwhelmingly a verdict on the war in Iraq are uh, produced one of the largest partisan swings in American history, and the Bush administration is done. And then, the you know, the financial crisis in 2008 mean that that, that merger that was formed under Bush. Um, is done right and kind of nobody knows what to do the insurgents don't know what to do the establishment doesn't know what to do mccain is able to kind of rise to the top um it, it is a time for mavericks in uh in 2008 um and then you know when obama comes in that creates the opportunity for the insurgency under the tea party right um but the Tea Party can't really, um, the, 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 the insurgents in the Republican Party, the people trying to drag the party farther to the right, have never been very good at producing presidential candidates. Um, they, they've never done a good job of that. And so you get Mitt Romney in 2012, who's an, who's an establishment figure, who loses, right? And I think a lot of people see Donald Trump as representative of, like, the insurgent right in the party. But I think that's, that's to fundamentally misread his place. He comes from outside the party. He and so like, you know, by by 2016, you've had like, uh, you know, you've had six years, uh, seven years of Tea Party activism. You know, Americans for Prosperity is a really well funded group by that point. They have their own candidates. They wanted like Scott Walker or uh, or Ted Cruz. They did not want Donald Trump. Right. And then you had the party establishment who was behind Jeb Bush, obviously. Right. But Trump. Kind of canceled the because there was this civil war in the Republican Party, they kind of canceled each other out, right? Their signals went unheard by the base because the party was so split. And Trump comes in running. Farther to the left on economics than Je- than Jeb Bush, right, promising to protect entitlements, and farther to the right on like entitlement or on on um sorry immigration than the Tea Partiers, right. So he's kind of he's taking advantage of this situation in which the the signals are scrambled to you know project his own uniquely scrambling uh, uh, presence in American politics. So I, I think it's important to to see that Trump. Was not the candidate of the right in the in the Republican um, uh, primaries. That's that, that that's to misread the situation. He came from outside that, and, and the Tea Partiers uh, and Americans for Prosperity did not like him at all. Right. Um. So the the, the institutional forces of the right in in American politics. Um, we're not allied with Trumpism. Now, you know, once Trump becomes president, everyone has to be allied with him, whether you're a moderate or, or not in the Republican Party. And so that changes things. But, but initially, he, w- he was not the, party, the the figure of the right.
0: So this is admittedly slightly outside of the scope of your article, but I want to ask you about the Republicans' relationship to their base, because I think we've covered who their base is not. Um, but I, I don't know if you know the like old phrase, Republicans fear their base and Democrats despise theirs. I, I always love that phrase. I don't know if it's, it's actually- never been like- more
1: true than after the riots. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that, you know, as all political witticisms go, like it's probably not completely accurate or like it doesn't 100% summarize what's going on. Uh, But I do think it's useful because on the one hand, of course, it kind of um, illustrates, uh, you know, uh, establishment Democrats unwillingness to actually fight for things like Medicare for all, which, you know, are actually like very popular with their base. Um, and then on the Republican side, I suppose uh, you know that old phrase kind of gets at something that I've observed, which is that uh, Republicans seem really seem really willing to kind of incite culture war or kind of like play to that wing of their base. So I, I guess the question for you is, you know, is there any truth to those kinds of like broad generalizations? And then a follow up is who are the Republicans base?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there is some truth to it. I mean, and there's, you know, there's good social scientific research on like the role of like Republican talk radio and Fox News and, and stirring people up. And, and there's, you know, you know, like the people who study this have found, like, in some cases, like Republican elites will be like, okay, you know, we should really try and cut a deal on immigration. Like we're getting, you know, like, there's, there's lots like Americans for prosperity in the chamber of commerce agree that they want immigration reform, you know, um, like no sector in the Republican party is like, we, you know, no sector of the, the kind of business, uh, uh institutions, the America uh, of the Republican party is like, we want to cut off immigration yet. That's like, that's a, you know, mainstream position among elected Republicans. And people have found like, you know, like people like Rush, like Rush Limbaugh would listen to these, uh, these, these Republican elites and be like, okay, well, we'll try and moderate it on it immigration a little bit we 'll try and sell some of this like immigration compromise stuff, and there they get total pushback like Rush Limbaugh gets total pushback from his like listeners and viewers being like, "What are you talking about that's a betrayal You can never do that you know like um so I think there there is a degree of truth to this that like this Republican base is kind of riled up and and able to kind of torpedo compromise. Um, and, and, and drive extremism in a way that the Democratic base isn't. I mean, I, I, I do think that part of the reason for that is this kind of divided elite among the Republican Party, you know, like, I, I, I think that if you had a unified elite in the Republican Party, you, you wouldn't see um, the, the, the base able to play that role because, you know, in American politics, voters fundamentally follow signals from, from party elites, you know, like gathering information on the political system is very difficult and costly. And so people look for, for cognitive shortcuts from, uh, you know, figures that they trust in their party on, on what, how to make sense of the situation. Voters in both parties do that. Um, now, among the Republicans, those signals have gotten so scrambled, um, and I think that the signals only make sense now in terms of culture war. You know, so when Republicans are like, "Critical race theory in the classrooms a menace," all the Republican voters are like, "Yes, I understand that." But on any kind of actually like salient policy point, their ability to deliver coherent signals to their base is basically non-existent, you know, Um, like even like around Trump's tax cuts, they really didn't actually succeed in winning, winning over large parts of their, uh, of their base to that. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's what we see then is like the, the culture war signals are, are, are running loud and clear, but actual like, like policy, the Republican Party can't really make that in a in a consensual way anymore, um, outside of like tax cuts, dereg you know, like just these kind of very broad standbys. Um, so yeah, and I think in terms of who the Republican base actually is, that's something um, that I want to expand on. Um, if I if I turn this into a book, um, I, I definitely want to do a chapter on who who is the Republican base. Um, but like. Just to be clear, you know, there's there's plenty of workers in the Republican base, right? It's not the case that I'm, I'm saying that like there's no workers who vote Republican. It's just not. It's not a clear majority of workers, right? It's not. It's, it's not the case that workers as a whole are identified with the Republicans. Income in the United States is still correlated with a uh, voting Republican. The higher income you are, overall, the more likely you are to vote Republican, right? Um, so, and, and there, there's been some interesting research coming out in the last few years. Um, one one researcher found that it's really, if you look at, at uh, how rich people are, not in the nationwide distribution of income, but in their county, right? In their county, are they rich or poor? And it's people who are locally rich who are really likely to vote Republican, right? So like, yeah, you might not be rich in Manhattan, but if you are rich in rural upstate New York, you know, if you're more wealthy than all of your neighbors, then then, yeah, you're, you're a lot more likely to vote Republican. So so there's some interesting research coming out on that kind of stuff around class and, and the Republican Party that um, I think is really valuable. And, and, and hopefully there'll be a lot more of that, that kind of really serious research that that doesn't just try and look for these kind of cultural stereotypes, but tries to look at like, OK, who actually is uh, the Republican base in the United States?
1: I didn't send you this before the show, but what you're talking about um, is so interesting to me in light of this memo that I was reading from the Republican Study Committee, which was a six-page memo sent by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy from California. He's a Republican. He is talking about this realignment that's supposedly happening. And I'm going to quote some parts of it because I just want you to dig into it because I think this really forecasts some of the political future that we're going to see. Um, So he, he writes, members that want to swap out working class voters because they resent President Trump's impact on the GOP are wrong. In fact, they are intentionally sabotaging Republicans' political future. And then he goes on to say that the vast majority of Republicans don't and shouldn't want to return to a GOP that neglects working class voters. But the key point here is the way he says to court those voters, what they want to be the deliverables. And that is to hug the agenda that differentiated President Trump in 2016 and supplement it with new relevant ideas. Those ideas are not outlined other than some things I'll touch on later that are just stunningly um, insignificant for most people's lives. Highlight the cultural and economic elitism that animates the Democratic Party. And GOP members must bring this message home to their constituents through tangible action items. And so some of the things that he says the GOP needs to focus on is um, holding roundtables and listening to working class people, which is a great idea if you do something with that information. Um, Creating a working families task force. Again, no real deliverable there. Um, Focusing on anti-wokeness. (laughs) as a way of courting the working class, um, emphasizing the Main Street, Wall Street divide and going after big tech. These things are so toothless, actually, and they really are just, you know, cultural gestures. Um, If you're focusing on anti-wokeness rather than Providing free childcare, or stable, affordable housing, or um, you know, long-term healthcare for the elderly, so on and so forth. Dignity for working people—you are never going to deliver that. But it seems like both parties, and sometimes the left, fall into a trap of caricaturing working people, um, believing that the only things that are tangible to them or important are interpersonal problems they might have with another person on Facebook or in their hometown. And I think this, you know, can be, this presents a real issue for the left. The The GOP is really good at demobilizing people. They're attacking people's voting rights across the country. They are really good at, you know, throwing, uh, having a national flame war rhetorically, um, you know, with trans, anti-trans bathroom bills and so on and so forth. But within this, you know, the left needs to fight for these bread and butter programs that actually would help the working class. So, where do we go in this kind of fractured, bizarre political landscape? We know where they're going, which is doubling down on the culture war stuff. I'm sure increasing the importance of funding in political campaigns, and then you know, attacking every shred of stability and safety that working people have. But you know, how do we take? take that uh, information and turn it into a left strategy.
3: Yeah, I was I was talking to Vivek, you know, the, the editor of Catalyst uh, about this, and he was like, you know, actually, the Nazis had offered more to working people than the Republican Party is, you know, I mean, the Nazis are obviously a pro-capitalist uh, enterprise, but um, he's like, the, the Nazis actually Offered something to, to to some shreds, some material shreds to working people in their attempt to build a working class base. The Republicans are offering, like, like you said, just literally nothing. Like just the the weakest kind of culture war uh, stuff that you know that they project, and that all too often liberals and the left help them project as the, the the real concerns of of working class people. Um, but you know, I, I do think that's an opportunity for the left. The the, the I mean. I would be much more worried if I thought there was actually a sector, a sector of the Republican Party that wanted to offer some real amelioration to working people alongside all of this culture war stuff, right? Like, like that—that that would worry me. But that doesn't exist, right? No, like, no one in the Republican Party actually wants to offer there, and there's no elite constituency in the Republican Party for that whatsoever, right? And that's that. That's an opportunity for the left that they are offering just literally nothing, right? Um, so I think yeah, I, I think that that means there that, that that creates space for the left to offer its own programs of, of of material improvement of, of of people's lives you know and i think you know what what we've been doing over the you know since since sanders in 2016 is is right right this we we propose the policies that are going to improve people's lives and we tell people about how they'll improve their lives and it's been very difficult to to win those policies the deck is stacked against us in any number of ways but that's, that's the name of the game, right? That's, that's the way working class parties all over the world were built, you know, you're a worker, this is what's making your life bad, here's what'll make like, here's what'll make your life better, right? Um, That's, that's the has to be the the basic pitch of the left, um, again, and again, and again, and it's going to be slow progress to to rebuild that and to build a party that that is capable of doing that. But there's, there's just no alternative, you know, and I, I do think that, I think that the current state the the, the the forces that i've outlined that are that are deranging the Republican party are on the one hand tremendously dangerous to the left, like the Republican party is now more open than it has really ever been in um just complete contempt for basic bourgeois democracy, you know, um, for the rules of basic bourgeois democracy. And that's really dangerous for the left, because we certainly can't enact policy if it's impossible for us to win elections, right? Um, like the, the the danger, I think, of, you know, Republican state houses refusing to certify electoral votes or whatever in, in 2024 is, is a real one. So on the one hand, that's, that's very dangerous for the left. On the other hand, the incoherence of American society, the weakness of American parties has created an opportunity, right? Like, the, the left has grown massively in the last five years through running primary campaigns. Um, and we wouldn't have that opportunity if, if uh, you know, if, if the, the, there weren't this ridiculous primary system in the United States. Now, of course, if we had a proportional representation system and you could just start your own party and run, that would obviously be even way better for us. But... The primary system has, um, su- you know, such as it is, pre- created an opportunity for us to be able to project our ideas on a much bigger level than than we had been previous, than than we had been able to project them when when you know we weren't using that system. So. Um, So I do think there's opportunities for the left right now um, that are created both by these kind of large scale kind of structural facts about American society and the, the, the Republicans incoherence and just complete inability to offer anything meaningful whatsoever to workers, even as they talk about workers more and more and more.
0: I want to follow up on, on this uh, point that, you know, the Republicans aren't offering anything to workers. I think that that is absolutely true. You know, we need only look at their policies, as, as you've pointed out, to see that that's true. Um, and I think, again, it's also true that the sort of gestures that certain Republicans are making toward populism or toward like a working class agenda, like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, who we talked about earlier, um, they're, they're not really going to to like I think Marco Rubio you know wrote an op-ed about how he like doesn't like the pro act uh you know uh they're not actually going to do anything to help workers but I'm wondering if you think that the kind of incoherence or the structural tensions within the Republican Party that you are just talking about may open up a space for some entrepreneurial or insurgent Republicans to offer some kind of like blood and soil uh or you know pro-populist uh kind of platform I mean you know Donald Trump obviously is one example. Now he didn't deliver on the sort of populist end of his platform, but do you think that there is some risk that a figure like that could uh, make inroads with the Republicans? I mean, I, I just ask because you know we we are hearing now more politicians, again, like Holly and Rubio, uh, trying to lean in that direction. There's that think tank, American Compass, which styles themselves as you know a pro working class conservative think tank. Um, I don't think that they're serious, but like that raises the question there does seem to be more interest uh in projecting that kind of image so i'm i'm wondering if you think a candidate who espouses kind of right-wing working class politics if such a thing exists could come to power
3: yeah i'm I, i'm skeptical because um, there's just no elite support for that within the Republican party. So there's more, there's more interest in that rhetoric than, than ever before, certainly. And people like Holly are, are just so unserious, you know, like Holly, when the, when, you know, they're, the Democrats are trying to raise the minimum wage and Holly's like, oh, I would support it, but there's no exception for small business. You know, it's like, okay, this is so, these are such lame excuses. Um, so and, and the fact – so Donald Trump is, I think, a good test case for this because, like you said, he, he ran as, like, the blood and soil, kick the immigrants out, I'll protect Social Security guy. But look at who he staffs his administration with. Like, Steve uh, – you know, like Steve Bannon and um, – and, um, what's his name? Uh, Miller are – Tillerson? Oh, uh, sorry.
1: Oh, Miller.
3: Yeah, Miller. Are, they're, they're the exception. Tillerson is the rule. Like Rex Tillerson, Steve Mnuchin, uh, Mike Pence, right? Like these are these are establishment figures completely, you know. And so there's no. It, it would take a lot more development of the the policy cadres of the Blood and Soil team for them to actually. Be a political alternative in the Republican Party, rather than just a rhetorical strategy that then immediately collapses into old school, gut the welfare state, cut all the taxes, Republicanism. Um, once the the person actually comes to power, um, so so in that sense, I, you know, I, I think there there's a market for that kind of rhetoric, absolutely, and we're going to continue to see that kind of rhetoric from the GOP. I'm skeptical that institutionally they have any capacity to actually deliver on that because there's just no appetite for it, among either of the elite factions that dominate the Republican Party at this point.
1: Yeah, I think you could really see that play out with the tariffs under Trump, um, because business was panicking. I think they were like, we didn't really think you were going to do this. Um, and it was popular with a lot of the Republican base. I think they felt like it was protecting American workers um, and big business was not on the same side. Um we are about to wrap up, but I wanted to ask one last question, which is a big one that might get us um we might have some scandalized commenters after this, but, you know, there are debates raging on the left about left electoralism. And I think that a lot of those take for granted um, assumptions about political power and money in the United States. And you have laid those bare in a lot of detail and present a much more complex story than, you know, the left should take over the Democratic Party, right? Um, So what prospects does that leave the left with for a kind of viable electoral strategy? Is there any kind of coherent political power that we can take over? Or is it just a matter of kind of building from scratch while the waves batter us back over and over and making that slow climb to progress?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the strategy of using Democratic primaries... Has just inarguably been a massive success for the left. You know um, it, it, that just seems very, very hard for me to uh, right. for anyone to argue with that. Um, whether the left can take over the Democratic Party, you know, I mean, uh, once upon a time I had a more strident position on this than I do now. Um, you know, I, I, I would say I genuinely don't know whether the left can take over the Democratic Party or not. Um, I, the the thing that I think that the leftists often fail to realize is that the two-party system in the United States is extremely strong. Two party the, the, the system itself is very strong, as strong as it's ever been. The parties themselves are weaker than they've ever been. And that's that's kind of a paradox, you know? But that's the situation we're in. Um, and that situation is one that presents opportunities for the left. You know, I mean that the, the two party system constrains us and the weakness of the Democratic elite presents us with opportunities. So, um, I mean, I kind of think we should keep on doing what, what we've been doing for the last five years until it really stops working, you know? Um, and th- and that point hasn't happened yet. Um, probably, you know, yeah, if, if I, if I was forced to bet, probably there will come a point when we have to, we, we have to split from the democratic party completely, you know, like that, I, I think that'll probably happen. I don't think the democratic party, um, officialdom is going to just let us, let us take over inch by inch, you know, um, you can't, you can't skin a tiger, paw, uh, you know, paw by paw as, uh, the English socialist R.H. Tawney once said, um, So, so yeah, so I think I I do think that things are going to come to a head. But I think, you know, I think it's a mistake to say, like, things are going to come to a head, there's going to be a break, therefore, our job right now is preparing for that break, you you know, like our job right now is to tell people break from the Democratic Party. I don't, I I don't think that's where things are at. And I, I don't think anyone has, um, a, a good enough theory to be so sure about where things are going to go. I think we all need a little bit of humility and we need to look at what's been working for us and what, you know, given where we think American society is and its political institutions look like what we think is going to, going to work for the foreseeable future and be aware that things could change fast. I mean, that's a probably as unsatisfying as of an answer as it's possible to give to that question. But um, I think, I think it's just the truth. You know, um, I, I uh, fundamentally my kind of, my uh, mo- most deeply held. Belief on this is just really be distrustful of anyone who, th- who thinks they have all the answers on this sort of question right now, because it really is up in the air.
0: Maybe in the meantime, just primary anyone and everyone. Yes.
3: <laughs> yes. Yes. I think, I mean, I think electoralism has been an unalloyed good for the left over the last five years and has forced leftists to go out and talk to people and figure out how to present their ideas to people who aren't kind of naturally primed by their social situation to agree with them. And that, that, that can only be a good thing for the left to have to do that.
0: All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Paul Heidemann, again, his latest article in Catalyst is Behind the Republican Party Crack-Up, and we are going to link that in the description box below. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks,
3: Thanks for having me. Think.
0: It was a, a great interview.
3: Thanks. Thanks yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: Paul's voice was still going (laughs) even even as we reappeared Um, he's behind me
1: (laughs) it was Kale the whole time (laughs) I tried to cover for it but it's not plausible
0: anyway Ariella any last words on Republicans Uh, again I really enjoyed that interview and um, the article itself is really good as well Uh, you mentioned there's actually a lot more in the article that we didn't get a chance to cover in the talk so definitely check it out
1: yeah, I think um, it's such a helpful kind of detailed um, parsing out of all of these dynamics. And you know, it's easy to sort of look at like what capitalism wants, anthropomorphize capitalism. Capitalism is like a set of rules and relationships that are enforced, and that doesn't mean the people within it need to have the same goal for the outcome to consistently be the same. And I think that's what this shows so well, right? Is that you have, you know, parts of the democratic party that are at odds with each other, parts of capital that are at odds with each other, Mm -hmm. but the end result for the working class is going to be a constant degradation of rights and resources. And that's because of broad dynamics within capitalism. Um, So I think it's, it's really important to actually, state very clearly like who has power in that and what power they have and not overstate it mm-hmm. um, and kind of really understand
0: where that lies. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, everyone subscribe to Catalyst. Check out Paul Heidemann's article and we will see you next week.